Welcome to 1514, a podcast of the Biblical Counseling Coalition. 1514 draws its name from Romans 1514, where the Apostle Paul encourages the church that they are full of goodness, filled with all knowledge, and able to counsel one another. I'm your host and the executive director of the BCC, Dr. Curtis Solomon, and I hope you enjoy today's episode. In today's episode, I'm joined by Darby Strickland, who counsels and teaches at the Christian Counseling and Educational Foundation, also known as CCEF. She's a contributor to Becoming a Church That Cares Well for the Abused and has authored other books on domestic abuse. Today, we discuss her book, Is It Abuse? A Biblical Guide to Identifying Domestic Abuse and Helping Victims. I cannot recommend this resource enough. I'd encourage you even to pause the podcast right now, go out and buy it. It's a great thick book that covers deeply the issues of how to identify abuse and how to address it in counseling. I'm really encouraged and appreciated the conversation I had with Darby today, and I hope you enjoy today's episode. Well, Darby, thanks so much for being with us on 1514. Would you mind introducing yourself to our audience? Sure. I'm a counselor and a faculty member at the Christian Counseling Education Foundation, but I would say my greatest joy in life has been homeschooling my three kids. Oh, that's sweet. That's sweet. What ages are your kids? They are getting too big for me. <laughs> one is in one is in college, um, so she, she's going to be a, a sophomore this year. And then I have a sixteen-year-old son and a twelve-year-old girl. Wow. Well, well done. Well done. We'll continue to pray that you uh, enjoy that and continue parenting well. I'm sure. Mm-hmm. Well, last year in 2020, uh, the crazy year that it was, you. I mean, in God's providence, this book came out, and I was so. Um, excited about this resource, but you released Is It Abuse? A Biblical Guide to Identifying Domestic Abuse and Helping Victims. Uh, can you tell us what, what led you to write this this book? Sure. I would say for a lot of years, the Lord just kept bringing me women in oppressive marriages. And when I first encountered them, I didn't really know what I was looking at. I was looking at women who are anxious or struggling with a particular marital issue, but I didn't know um, what they were enduring was abuse. And then when I mm. figured it out, um, my heart just grieved for them. My heart just grieved for the many women where it's not detected. Um, and I wanted to go to scripture with the hard questions that they were bringing me about what to do, how to be loving, how to proceed with their marriage. Um, and then after that, I just really felt convicted that the church should become part of their stories. Mm. Um, they're just so overwhelmed. There's so many things for them to be considering. There's children involved. And I'd go to local churches and pastors and elders and ask for help. And they just didn't get it or see it immediately. They didn't necessarily understand all the implications. And so the Lord just, I knew in my heart that if these shepherds understood what was really happening in these homes, that things were happening that they couldn't really imagine, they would want to be addressing them. So I just thought hard to think, how do I communicate this biblically? Mm. So it's it's come from a couple of years of really diving deep a lot of conversations with victims and churches. Yeah, no doubt. Uh, diving deep is is putting it lightly. I mean, this is a 350-page work. You really, really poured a lot into it. And I think even in my endorsement of the book, I, I wrote just a, a, out of appreciation and gratitude for you wading into this dark world because it's a... It is a dark place to to go, um, so thank you for doing that. Um, and what what was the hardest part about writing it? I mean, because it when I think about writing what you wrote, uh, it would be heavy. Yeah, I think you're exactly right. I think 
writing the book for me was not an academic exercise. Mm-hmm. I had particular people carried with me particular stories. And so it's just recounting those. Um, it's just, there's so much brokenness. Um, and it just was a, attached to people that the Lord, I just loved. So mm-hmm. in one way that was hard. Um, mm-hmm. Talking about these things is hard. It's dark. But in the other, it's knowing that I'm wanting to reach people who are vulnerable in need of help. Um, and so how do I take the hard things, the sad things that I know have been walking in darkness? How do I shine Jesus's light into that, but also create it in such a way that it's really going to be helpful um, for helpers and for people who are vulnerable? And I felt challenged that I wanted it to be really practical, but I wanted it to be um, a place where people who were wounded felt they really could be tended to well. Yeah, yeah. No, and I think you hit both of those really, really well. It's super practical, but also very deep. And um, one of the, yeah, one of the ways, I, one of the things I appreciate the most is when somebody can say, honestly, when I've listened to them and recounted what they've heard, they've been through, that you really get me, you really understand me. And I think your uh, people who are in abusive relationships would say that about your work. So, um what you mentioned that it was hard for you even to identify abuse in some of the early cases that you were dealing with it. So, what? Um, how do how do you define? Or I say describe because defining it is so hard, and there's so yeah. many different definitions out there. But uh, it it takes a little bit more than a one sentence description. But how would you describe or help people understand what is abuse? Abuse is really about coercive control. So when we're looking at domestic abuse, we are try- we're trying to assess where there's a pattern of coercion and controlling behavior um, that one spouse uses to gain and maintain power over another. Mm. Um, so I really prefer to use the biblical category oppression because I feel like it captures the idea of that domination and that I'm going to use somebody else for my gain. Mm. And it's hard to imagine that's actually what's happening in a marriage if we haven't encountered it before. Um, just to have some, be, someone be so self-serving and so self, just so sinister yeah. that they would really be about dominating their spouse. Yeah, no, that's really helpful, and and I appreciate the bringing scripture into it and seeing what scripture would say about it, uh, and and using those categories is very very helpful. Um, you identify and address a few different types of abuse uh, in the book. Can you tell us what those are? Sure. Physical abuse is, I think, the category that most people are acquainted with. We often don't think of when someone's driving you in a car to scare you or frighten you. That's also physical abuse Um, or just throwing or intimidating physical posture. Um, I do spend quite a bit of time in the book talking about sexual abuse. I encounter particularly with women in churches. Probably about 70% of the women I counsel have experienced sexual abuse um, from their spouses and just see it more commonly in our circles. And that's just where someone's either um, constantly pressured um, to perform certain acts or to, to you serve, I wouldn't even say serve sexually, right, but to be enslaved sexually to their spouse mm. or there's violating or boundary pushing. And so it looks like a lot of different things. Emotional abuse, we often think of where someone's being torn down or they're made to feel that they're crazy right like there's mind games happening Mm. but also can look like extreme neglect where i don't care anything about you and you're not really a person to me um spiritual abuse is just another manifestation of emotional abuse except now 
we're using scripture or our theology mm. to, to justify what we're doing because we're using it in such a warped and twisted way. Um, and then there's just financial, which I think, I think in the book, I think it says about 99% of women who are abused are also financially abused. Wow. Yeah, that's a, that's a lot of different things. And for, for people, so many people are still, when they hear abuse, they think of punching, they think of choking, they think of something very physically violent. Uh, but as you mentioned there, even physical abuse can take on different forms. How would you help um, somebody who is thinking only of physical abuse expand their mind to understand that, no, this, this oppression takes place in, in lots of different ways? I think one is just to understand the primary weapon of an oppressor is to define reality, and they do that with their words. So they want to create a lot of confusion. Um, they want their um, spouse to feel guilty, to feel unsure, and it's really what the words that an oppressor uses mm. are their most dangerous weapon, whether they're physical or not. That's with their words, they're able to establish control. They're able to threaten. They're able to belittle. They're able to devalue. Um, and so I think if we understand, and scripture does, it talks about the power of the words, the mm, power of our yeah. tongue. Um, it's If we just broaden it and we start to look at scripture that way, it's easy to see that a lot of evil can be done with just the words that are offered. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So obviously your book describes in detail much, much more than we can go into in a podcast some of the ways to identify abuse because i mean even in the title that's what part of part of what you're doing uh so for somebody who's new to this arena if they're sitting down in a counseling room what maybe are some things that they can look for and see uh that may not be obvious to them now uh but now after you've had a lot of experience counseling that might even just tip them off to begin pursuing this line of questioning or line of investigation Two things I commonly see is one, when a couple comes in for marriage counseling, if one partner or particularly the husband is more directive to the counselor, I think we need to work on this book. My wife really struggles with communication or she doesn't respect me and they really bring a strong agenda. And the wife is really quiet. She's really not free to interject. She's not saying much. That's something that's just tipped me off that someone's bringing me an agenda and maybe it's a good one. Um, maybe their wife does need to learn how to communicate better, but it makes me more curious. Are there other imbalances in the relationship? Why is one person defining the problem so strongly for me? The other is I often have women come in to see me and they are not sure of themselves or not sure of their story. They often bring notes um, saying this happened. I don't really understand. I can't remember this right. They just seem disorganized in their thinking. Um, there's a lot of anxiety that they can't really attribute to any one thing. They're not necessarily coming to me and saying, Darby, I have a marriage problem. They're saying, I don't feel like I love my husband mm. or I'm feeling really depressed. I'm feeling really anxious. I'm starting to have panic attacks. And it's when they just can't speak literally, the trauma has kind of formed them to create these circular stories. When there's an uncertainty or they're showing me any confusion, that's another place I really want to slow down and just make sure, do some screening of what's going on in their relationship. No, that's good. And it's also really helpful, like you said, it just makes you curious and you want to do more screening because you don't want to jump to conclusions too quickly either. So that's just as dangerous, right? So mm. I always say we see red flags and we do that with our children all the time, but it doesn't, doesn't mean that what we are suspicious of is actually true. 
it's loving to approach some with a careful curiosity. So Darby, one of the things that you do, you wanted the book to be really practical in helping people uh, go through this. And you've just told us things, some things to look for. And if, if a counselee is seeing these things, you didn't want to leave them hanging uh, and not knowing how to investigate those. So you gave a lot of different inventories in the book, lines of questioning that people can go down with somebody. Um, how would you recommend somebody use those inventories? Should they just go straight through them? What, what would that look like practically? Yeah, I think it really depends on the person and the situation. I think it's really good. There's some basic questions like, are you ever free to disagree with your spouse? Um, what happens when your spouse is angry? But I think are probably just good questions that we're screening in most of our counseling situations. Mm. And then when we find something that's curious to us, I think we definitely um, want to dig down and d- drill deeper. And a lot of those inventories, particularly the physical abuse and the sexual abuse, I actually recommend using an inventory just saying something mm. like, you know, I'm really concerned about what I'm hearing. I just want to make sure I understand um, the scope of what you're facing because of the language. You can, you can say to a victim, um, does your spouse physically abuse you? And they might say no. But then when you pull it apart and say, have they ever thrown anything at you? Mm. Well, yes. Right? If you say, has your spouse sexually violated you? They will usually say no. But if you say, have you been lectured about um, your sexual performance, they might say yes. Mm. And so we just don't think to speak to how we word a question is really important. Yeah. But also, we can't imagine what's happening. So we do kind of want to go through a long, broader inventory to, to get to some of the specifics. Yeah, no, that's good. And I mean, historically, the biblical counseling movement, we've generated a lot of these inventories for that exact reason, right? We don't want to assume we can't, we're not theirs. And, and oftentimes people aren't thinking about all those things and those questions trigger that. Uh, and for those who buy the book, the, the inventories are all in there and they are tremendous. I mean, in and of themselves, it would be worth the, worth buying the book, but there's so much more. Um, they can, people can reproduce those, correct? And just use them again and again and again if they've purchased the book. That is my hope. My hope is to reproduce them, particularly parts like the safety plan of Mm. any inventory. And I think it's great to have a photocopy of them, too, because sometimes you don't want to bring out the abuse book. You don't want to actually Mm. suggest, I'm worried you're an abusive marriage. You want to have some of those questions at the ready. But, yeah, I I hope they get reused in yeah. Yeah. I'm sure. I'm sure they will. And yeah, that safety plan is also just golden, just a really helpful t- tips there. So thanks again for, for doing that. One of the, one of the inventories you at, you have um, in the back of the book is called detecting red flags during dating, which I really appreciated the foresight to prevent uh, mm-hmm. abusive marriages and abusive relationships. Um, can you pr- briefly summarize how you might use that in counseling or even maybe if a, if a person picked this up who is curious if they are maybe dating an abuser, how that might be beneficial to them? Yeah, I, I think it's really difficult to detect abuse in dating because abuse doesn't look like abuse. It looks like passion and intensity and jealousy. And so mm-hmm. even just talking to the person um, that you're counseling or a good friend you're seeing her, maybe um, her boyfriend's isolating her a little bit, or he's really jealous, or she's getting an excessive number of text messages. To maybe a trained eye would be concerned about that, but most people are going to say, oh, he's really into you. It's exciting. The recipient of those things might be enjoying the attention. And mm. so one of the things I hope to do with the inventory is just talk about um, really um, 
red flags or what I would want to introduce into a counseling room as deal breakers. So we often as Christians don't talk about what are things we should not put up with in dating. Yeah. Um, and so I think even just going through the inventory, you know, what's it like Do you feel, again, do you feel like you can disagree with this person? Do you feel like they are interested um, in the things that interest you or do things always have to be on their time frame? Are they fostering your other relationships? And so I think a way just to bring about some of those questions to say this is what a healthy relationship looks like. But there's actually a category of behaviors that should be a deal breaker for a relationship. We often think about two sinners. I remember I was presented with just pick the sin you're going to choose in your spouse. <laughs> you have to live with somebody's <laughs> sin. I just think we underserve our young people. So we want to think some of these things actually have roots in things that are much more sinister. This is yeah. helping people connect to that. No, that's really, that's really good word. It almost, um, you know, it makes me kind of want to, include this questioning in all premarital counseling, honestly, uh, and not necessarily flag it as like a, we're looking for abuse, but just, just to ask those questions because we have so much abuse in the church and it, it, are there ways that we could have steered it off or, or avoided it or prevented it, dealt with it ahead of time? It would have been, this might be a good way to do that. I don't know. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I do think I have a pre-marital inventory in there as well that I hope does get some traction. For yeah. That yeah. There's so yeah. There's there's tons tons in here. I keep keep. Uh, I want to reach. And, I have daughters, so they were definitely in mind. <laughs> I keep wanting to reach out to all the audience and just saying, "Go buy the book." Like, and and I really appreciated Brad Hambrick on the and his endorsement of it said. Uh, you may not think you need, basically, you may not think you need this, but I guarantee you, if you read it before you need it, when you need it, you'll be very thankful. Uh, and that's just a really good, a really good word there. Um, this was something that stirred up in my thinking when we were preparing in 2019 for the BCC's Summit on Abuse, was just if uh, with some of those red flags that you're identifying and things that we're looking for, are there ways that we could actually look at our young people, and we'll say predominantly young men because the predominantly abuse is uh, male to female. It can go the other way. We're not ignoring mm -hmm. that. Um, but to be able to look at him and say, man, his heart seems inclined in this direction, and I think if we don't do something to steer it towards Christ and away from this, uh, it's likely to end in abuse. Any thought about that and how, how we might be able to use what you've written and other thinking to, to identify that in young people and, and help them grow before they actually act out in abusive ways? Yeah, I think that's a great question. I think I have two extreme answers. One is that abusive people tend to be so charming and tend to create such a public image um, where they tend to be adored in their public lives that it's really hard for us to detect. Mm. The other thing is I do think we can do a lot of good prevention work. And one way is just understanding that what fuels abuse is entitlement. Mm. And if someone wants to be king of their own kingdom um, and they're willing to punish and wound others to get their way, um, then it becomes dangerous and abusive. But we see we all have a little bit of entitlement in us, right? So if we're all, um, particularly with our young people, we want to raise people people who are willing to serve. They, we want to raise young men to understand that a husband is a servant leader, um, that when they don't get their way, how to express disappointment, 
mm. um, that there's other ways um, just to um, be empathetic or see somebody else's point of view. So when we come across people who always have to be right or they want to be the center of attention, but they're not wanting to serve or they un what they understand about roles in marriage is skewed. I think those are places that we can go in and teach. Mm. And I think the other thing, sadly, in our Christian churches, we have this undercurrent of pornography mm. that's yeah. feeding entitlement, particularly in men and women. But the way that that then fosters, right, then they become a little less human. Their wives become a little less of a person to them. Mm. And I think just by being honest with these are the dangers in our culture. We live in a culture where we feel entitled. We live with this risk of pornography harming our hearts this way. I think like there's so many different ways we can get at it. Yeah, no, that's really helpful, really good. And and I think it also makes it less scary, less daunting maybe for people because I think I know working in post-traumatic stress counseling and or abuse, you hear these things and it gets really scary. But oftentimes when you back up and step away, those are foundational Christian biblical discipleship types of truths like love others sacrifice for yourself, serve, humility. Um, so even doing basic dis Christian formation discipleship is really going to help our young people um, avoid these tendencies. Um, you did me you mentioned there the, the fact that we all kind of have a sense of entitlement. We all sin. We all struggle in these ways. We are all tempted to put ourselves before others. But if somebody is thinking about this or looking at it or maybe even just examining their own heart and thinking, man, I... I wrestle with that. I struggle with that. I don't, am I an abuser? Uh, how would you walk them through examining themselves and what kind of guidance would you give? Yeah. One, I just would be encouraging that it's good that we find these things in us. I find entitlement in my own heart. And what I want to do with that is then I want to bring it into the light. And I want, I want to ask the Lord and other people I'm in relationship. When I possess these attitudes, how does it impact you? Do you find that I'm wounding and punishing when I don't get my way? Um, and so it's we're all going to feel disappointed. Um, we're all going to be selfish at times. But what do I do with that? And so I think if we, we want to ask others for input on how does that sin affect them. Um, and so I just, and for some people, they might learn or not be, they're asked that question. They might get a harder answer than others. And I think then they just keep asking for help. Mm. Um, with somebody who can really guide them. For most of us who are asking that question, it's because we are self-aware. We are broken. We're concerned about sinning. Um, and it, But it is still good to root out in us. Amen. Amen. Um, one of the things that you hit on and you talk about is the importance of, a, of enabling the person who's been abused to, to speak, to share her story, to talk about it. Uh, why, why is that so important in this uh, process and for for people. I think just a little bit what I alluded to later earlier was that oppressors use words to create and define the narrative. Mm. So victims are often confused. They often think the abuse they're enduring is their fault. Um, they can't remember things, um, and the way that they're connecting the dots of their story is often wrong. I mean, so just by the very act of speaking. Um, just saying this is what's happening. Someone can say, "This is that's wrong. Um, I, you, I'm not okay that I'm hearing that my sister is suffering this way. It allows truth um, to go, enter in, right, where they might be misinterpreting 
yeah. the abuse that's happening to them is their fault, but it also begins to create an order and they begin to organize their story, which is really important. No, that's really helpful. That's, that's a man, that's a global concept there. Cause it really does. When we, if we all step back and look at our lives, no matter what the sin is, no matter what the suffering is, no matter what it is, if whenever we begin to start thinking, believing, feeling, uh, and perceiving the world as in a way other than what it actually is, when it's not mm-hmm. in line with the truth, there's lots of problems there. And and like you said, in abuse, the abuser is intentionally trying to distort reality. Um, and yeah, no, that's really... Really helpful. So, one uh, your book is writing about abuse specifically in the in the arena of domestic abuse, but we know that abuse happens in lots of relationships that are not husband wife, not in in the in the home. Uh, how much do the principles that are in your book overlap with some of those other relationships and and other forms of abuse? That's a great question, right? Because we see the same thing with parent child or um, a leader, a church leader to a congregant, anytime somebody has power over somebody, the same dynamics are in play. I would say part one of my book, um, it doesn't address that specifically, but it certainly talks about the heart of somebody who would oppress. And it certainly talks about how to love somebody who has those wounds of being oppressed, just really practical. How, how would Jesus have us enter in um, to a victim's world who, where there's they feel so much chaotic and uncertainty and they're afraid to trust and expose what's happening. Definitely this, the second and third parts of my book are definitely more specific application to domestic abuse, but really it's, it's the oppressor's mentality is the same in all those situations. No, that's really, yeah, that's really helpful. So I think being able to identify that and then even using the second half of the book to get an idea of the types of questions to ask or, or directions to go could help in those, in those other ways as well. So Darby, you've written on this book. Uh, you've done a lot of, you've done some other mini books. Is there anything else you're working on now? I think what's captured my mind in the last couple months was the idea of assessing for repentance. I just wrote an article on the, from the Journal of Biblical Counseling on that. It's just really brought to my mind and attention all the ways that scripture is often misused um, with mm-hmm. victims of abuse or with oppressors. And so I just have a couple passages. I don't know what form it's end form it's going to take, but I really just want to spend some time doing some teaching and potentially writing on some passages that tend to be misused in this area. Could you, uh, wow, that's a, that's really curiosity inviting. So what, could you give us an example of one of those and maybe how it's, how it's misused? Sure. Um, I think just the idea of in first Peter, where they talk about, you know, redemptive suffering and mm. submitting as slaves to a brutal master and then applying that to wives of saying, you know, you're going to model Christ if you suffer and yeah. it's good to suffer um, versus really understanding that um, Jesus even fled suffering when he could avoid it. And we want to don't, not lift verses out and extract a principle where the Bible speaks richly about fleeing mistreatment and we don't just love our spouse by enduring suffering. We also love our spouse by speaking truth. Yeah, um, yeah. Right? And so, like, loving needs to be expanded. 
Well, good. Well, I'm excited to see what form those take, whether it's a full book or articles or, or whatnot. I really commend you in that. That'll be a really helpful resource to people. So when if people are looking to find your other books or more of your writing ministry, how can they find you or connect with you? Sure, they can find me at ccef.org. Um, if you search my name, a lot of the blogs um, will pop up there. Uh, my book can be found at WTS Books or Amazon. Great. Yeah. And so I encourage everybody, seriously, it is an exemplary biblical counseling manual. So I encourage everybody to go get it, to be prepared to deal with abuse uh, cases, um, but also just to see the types of things we need to be creating as biblical counselors, just doing excellent work. So thank you again for for writing that. Uh, Thank you for the recommendation of an endorsement. Well, Darby, I reserved the last two minutes of of our podcast, even though I've totally botched this one, uh, to two-minute favorites. So are you ready for this segment? Sure, bring it on. All right, here we go. What is your favorite food? Cookies, for sure. What is a favorite gift you've ever received? Uh, my wedding day, my husband brought me a strand of pearls before I yep, Very nice. We got married, yeah. Favorite gift you've ever given? Uh, my mother's 60th birthday, I bought her a higher balloon ride, something she's always wanted to do. Favorite word? Wonky. Least I lived in Northern Ireland for a bit, and the word just covers a lot of situations. <laughs> right. Least favorite word? Whatever. Favorite book of the Bible? James. Favorite book outside of Scripture? Shame Interrupted by Ed Welsh. Just mm. can't say enough about it. Favorite color? Pink. Favorite sport? Swimming. Favorite sports team? Chicago Bears. Favorite Bible verse? Um, Colossians 3.12. Early on as a seminary student, I heard a sermon on it, and um, the pastor just used the acronym CHILL. You know, it just talks about how we're chosen, holy, and dearly loved, and then proceed with patience and compassion. And just something I'm easily saying to myself all the time, not just chill, but really soak in how you're loved. Mm. Uh, Favorite ice cream flavor? Chocolate marshmallow. Favorite candy? Um, Orange chocolate. Favorite quote? Um, For my children, I will say, love is the brightest in the dark Hmm. from the Avatar series. All right. Uh, And favorite favorite movie? Romancing in the Stone. All right. If you had one, if you could choose any superpower, what superpower would you choose? Flying. And if your mother were to describe you in one word, what word would she use? Forgiving. Mm, very good. Well, that was fantastic, and our time is up. Darby, thanks so much for joining us for 1514. Thank you for having me. Thank you for listening to today's episode of 1514. If you'd like to find out more about the Biblical Counseling Coalition, you can visit our website at biblicalcc.org. Special thanks to our podcast engineer, James Wills, who does all the post-production editing to make this podcast sound so wonderful. Also want to thank my assistant, Carrie Felton, for helping to arrange these interviews. And a special thanks to Andrew Riddell, who composed and recorded the music we use on 1514. I hope you have a wonderful day.